You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On October 12, 1492, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, a man named Rodrigo de Triana shouted out from his small ship the words, Tierra, Tierra, or Land, Land. That moment marks one of the pivotal events in world history. Europeans were returning to the Americas for the first time since the age of the Vikings. No one realized it at the time, but it was a feat epic in nature. The discovery, or rediscovery is probably a better term, of the Americas would open up a new age, not just for Western civilization, but for the entire world. The man behind this epic voyage was a 41-year-old Genoese mariner, Christopher Columbus, arguably the most famous explorer in all of history. In some ways, doing a podcast about Columbus is a bit daunting. I mean, he's such a critical figure in history. You don't want to screw up the story of such an important and recognized individual. Another challenge about telling the story of Columbus is that there is a lot written about him. Sometimes too much information makes writing these scripts more difficult, as you have to call through so many sources to find your story. It's sort of like starting a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. In some ways, you have trouble just getting going because you dread dumping all those pieces onto a table and just trying to figure out how to begin. However, while having so much information about Columbus can be a challenge, it's also a blessing. It just gives us so much more to draw upon. I do want to note that a lot of sources means a lot of conflicting information. Please know that, like a lot of subjects on this podcast, I've gone with the best information that I feel is available about Columbus and his voyages. But we should remember that things don't always mesh from source to source. Ultimately, you just have to take a stab at what's best and move on. I think we all understand that this dilemma is simply the nature of this beast. So, despite the daunting nature of this project, we are going to take a look at the life and the accomplishments of Christopher Columbus. It is an amazing life, as he would conduct four voyages of discovery to the Americas, voyages that would change the world. Let us dive in. Christopher Columbus was born in 1451 in the Republic of Genoa, a city-state that is now part of modern-day Italy. His name in Italian was Cristoforo Colombo. His parents were Domenico Colombo, a wool weaver, and Susanna Fontana Rosa. He had three brothers, Giovanni, Pellegrino, and Bartholomew, as well as one sister, Bianconetta. Columbus was the eldest of the children. As a wool weaver, Domenico Colombo would have had a steady job. It might not have made him rich, but it paid the bills. The family would have been what you'd call middle class, or maybe lower middle class. Like some of the Italian city-states, such as Venice and Naples, 
Genoa was historically a powerful and influential city. The city at one point controlled the islands of Corsica and Sardinia, as well as lands in Greece and Turkey and the Crimea. Genoese merchants spread throughout the Mediterranean, Aegean, and Black Seas, increasing the economic might of the city. However, by the 1400s, the power of Genoa was on the decline. Wars with rivals such as Venice would weaken the city-state, and the encroachment of the Ottoman Turks in the east would further diminish Genoa's empire. The fall of Constantinople, today known as Istanbul, in 1453 was a major blow, as the overland flow of silks and spices and other goods from the east was greatly reduced. Thus, Genoa's colonies gradually were swallowed by other empires, and the city's economic and political power waned. By the mid-1450s, around the time of Columbus's birth, the city was basically a pawn in the great political games of Europe. So, Columbus would receive a good education as a boy, learning, reading, writing, and arithmetic. He was said to have developed a passion for history and geography, as well as the sea. This latter passion would lead him to develop interests in geometry, astronomy, and navigation. He would also learn Latin. I also want to mention that Columbus would grow up to be a very religious man. In his writings, he often talks about things like his destiny. He had a very strong sense that God was guiding him in his life. I talk about this because his religious nature is a very critical part of his character, and it will especially come into play when he explores the Americas. So, while Columbus's father was a wool weaver, it was the sea that would beckon the young Christopher. Now, Genoa may not have been as powerful of a political entity as it had been a century before, but the city still had its strengths. The banking sector was strong and influential, and Genoa's maritime industry was still a powerhouse. Genoese merchants may have lost many of their connections in the east, but enterprising individuals expanded their trading forays to other places, in particular Africa, which would become the city's economic bread and butter. The slave trade was extremely profitable and dangerous. In Europe, it was against church law to own a Christian slave, but non-Christian slaves were a different matter. This made the trade of slaves from Africa and the East a huge industry, and the Genoese were part of it. So, like many Genoese young men, Christopher Columbus was destined for the seas. He says that he went to sea at the age of 10. If so, he would likely have been a cabin boy. As he grew into his teens, Columbus learned the arts of being a sailor. A lot of the information about Columbus and his youth is a bit murky, so all of the stories of his younger years are suspect. However, it does appear that he participated in trading as well as military missions during his formative years. He sailed to the island of Chios in the Aegean Sea, one of the few remaining Genoese colonies, and he was involved in various military encounters involving Genoa and rival city-states such as Naples. Slowly but surely, Columbus acquired his naval skills. He was not an officer in these early years, just an ordinary seaman sailing on the galleys common to the region. In 1473, Columbus, at the age of 22, found himself working as a business agent for several powerful Genoese families. In this capacity, he likely sailed throughout the region working for these wealthy dynasties. In 1476, he would be a sailor in a convoy of ships heading up the coast of Portugal. There, they were attacked by a fleet of French and Portuguese privateers. Several ships would be sunk in the fighting, including Columbus's. As for Columbus, he was wounded in the fighting, and to survive, he would find himself clinging to the wreckage of one of the ships. He would be forced to swim six miles in the ocean, using the wreckage as a life vest of sorts, until he reached the Portuguese coast. Now that he was in Portugal, Columbus would travel to Lisbon, and eventually settle in with the large Genoese community that lived there. This would be his home for nearly a decade. Now, if his near-death experience did anything, it did not dissuade Columbus from going back to sea. The next year, he would partake in a journey north, to Bristol, England, and Galway, Ireland. 
There is even some thought that Columbus went as far northwest as Iceland, but no one knows if that is true. Eventually, he would settle into his new home in Portugal, and there Columbus would see the maritime world changing before his eyes. The Portuguese were Europe's most aggressive mariners, and here he witnessed and experienced their distinctive caravels, ships that were sturdy and maneuverable, unlike the galleys he had sailed on in the Mediterranean. Lisbon was a vibrant and active port, and there was opportunity for an experienced sailor such as Columbus. The Portuguese, for decades, starting under Prince Henry the Navigator, had been aggressively exploring the western coast of Africa, pushing further and further south. Their goal was ultimately to round the southern tip of Africa, wherever that was, and to establish a trade route to the Far East. Now, getting to the Far East meant trade. Silk, gold, precious stones, and of course spices. We all know how important spices were at this time. Things like cinnamon, cloves, pepper, and nutmeg, they were worth more than gold. And the only place you could get these things were in the mysterious eastern lands of China and India and the Spice Islands. As noted, the Portuguese were set on reaching the Far East by rounding Africa. But other people had a different idea. This other school of thought believed that if you could sail west into the Atlantic, you would eventually reach Asia. However, the Atlantic Ocean was a big blank blob on the world's maps, at least most of them. Now, Columbus was one of those men who believed that Asia was just over the western horizon. It was here, in Portugal, that he began to devise his idea for a voyage of exploration to the west. Now, I want to take a bit of a side trip to help set the stage for Columbus's voyage, even if it is many years away. At this time, Spain was not the single political entity that we know it today. Instead, Spain consisted of four distinct territories, Aragon, Castile, Granada, and Navarre. The other major player on the Iberian Peninsula was Portugal. But in 1469, Isabella of Castile wed Ferdinand of Aragon. Both were heirs to their respective thrones. Castile was the preeminent power of the region, but Aragon was no slouch. The marriage made for a potentially formidable political entity. In 1474, Isabella would ascend to the throne of Castile. This would spark a war between Castile and Portugal, the War of Castilian Succession. In 1479, the war would come to an end with the signing of the Treaty of Alcacovas. The result would be a bit of a mixed bag. Essentially, Isabella and her allies would claim victory on land, but the Portuguese would claim victory at sea. Isabella retained her throne and would gain possession of the valuable Canary Islands, but the Portuguese would be awarded the exclusive rights of navigating, conquering, and trading in all of the Atlantic Ocean south of the Canaries. This was a huge deal because it effectively cut off Spain from maritime trade and exploration in the southern Atlantic, which also meant that they could not try and round Africa and set up their own trade routes to the Far East. Next, Ferdinand would become king of Aragon in 1479 on the death of his father. This left Isabella and Ferdinand as rulers of Castile and Aragon, which at this point we will just call Spain. The monarchs were ambitious, and they desired to get in on the valuable trade enterprises that the Genoese and Venetian merchants held in the Mediterranean, as well as those that the Portuguese had in the south. But before they could do that, there was a major thorn that the Spanish monarchs had to deal with first, and that was the territory of Granada. Remember, Spain consisted of four regions, Castile, Aragon, Navarre, and Granada. Castile and Aragon were effectively united. As for Navarre, this was a smaller kingdom in the northeast that bordered France. It was dominated, however, by its larger and more powerful neighbors, Castile and Aragon. Thus, Ferdinand and Isabella were content to let Navarre operate as an independent, 
albeit minor, kingdom. However, the other region on the Iberian Peninsula, other than Portugal, was Granada. Granada rested on the southern tip of Spain, directly across from Morocco. Granada was the last stronghold of the Moors in the region. For hundreds of years, it had been a foreign and Muslim presence in mainland Europe. Isabella and Ferdinand dreamed of driving the Moors into the sea, and in 1482, they would begin a series of wars against Granada in an attempt to gain control of the territory. This war would occupy the Spanish monarchs for the better part of a decade. So, that sets the stage for the next 15 years or so of Columbus's life. It was 1477-1478, and he was now living in Portugal. Here, Columbus would meet and marry Felipa Moniz Perestrello, the daughter of a respectable Portuguese noble family. But while she was from a noble family, Felipa's mother was widowed and wasn't rich. Columbus is said to have not asked for a dowry, making the marriage agreeable to all parties. In the end, the marriage would open doors for Columbus, doors to places that he longed to be part of, the aristocracy. It was said that his mother-in-law, whose late husband had been a prominent mariner, aided Columbus by giving him navigation instruments and maps and charts and documents that had belonged to her husband, and she would introduce her ambitious son-in-law to important members of the Portuguese nobility. Christopher and his young wife would have a son, Diego, in 1479 or 1480. He would then spend the next few years plying his trade as a mariner. It is said that he sailed extensively down the coast of Africa, taking advantage of the trading opportunities opened up by the aggressive Portuguese crown. Columbus would also become close with his brother, Bartholomew, who was 10 years his junior. Bartholomew would set up a map business in Lisbon at this time, and Columbus was said to have helped him make maps and charts as a way to make extra cash during these years in Lisbon. In 1484 or 1485, Columbus's wife would die while he was away. The cause of her death is obscure, but I've read in some places that she was murdered. We really don't know anything more than that. Now, no matter what the circumstances, there doesn't seem to be any dark secret stories involving Columbus and his wife's mysterious death, so we will just say that she died and leave it at that. So, Columbus was 33 or 34 years old at this time, he had honed his craft as a sailor and navigator, and he had steadily wormed his way up into the upper echelons of Portuguese society, even if he lacked money and stature. And for years, he had been a proponent of the concept of sailing west into the Atlantic Ocean as a way to reach the Far East. Regarding the idea of sailing around the world, it's important to understand that learned people of the era believed that the world was round. We've talked about this on other podcasts, including the series on Magellan. Few scholars or mariners thought that sailing west would result in them falling off the edge of the world. The idea of a flat world was something that common people might believe, but not learned men. The big question was just how far away were the fabled eastern lands, if one took a westerly route. Columbus believed that the Far East was as close as 2,400 miles. One key source that he cited was the map of Paolo del Pozzo Toscalini, an astronomer and mathematician from Florence. In 1474, Toscanelli sent a letter and map to the Portuguese court proposing that it was easier to reach the Far East by sailing west. Columbus had seen Toscanelli's famous map, and it showed a world that was much smaller than reality. It is also likely that Columbus had access to other maps and charts of the world through his brother's business in Lisbon. Columbus studied these maps and charts, as well as devouring any writings or news or rumors about what lay to the west, beyond the Atlantic Ocean. And he used Marco Polo's writings as a sort of gospel of what he would find in the east eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? 
and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, in 1484 or 1485, he finally decided that the time was right to pursue his grand enterprise, an expedition to the West. His first stop would be the Portuguese crown. This was his adopted country, after all, and the Portuguese were aggressive and open-minded when it came to exploration. He had developed contacts, and now was time to call in any favors. But Portugal already had their own ideas about sailing for the Far East. As discussed, they were sailing south, down the coast of Africa. That was their ticket to the fabled Spice Islands in China. The Portuguese king, John II, listened to Columbus, but the king's experts, while they agreed that a westerly voyage was possible, believed that the distance to be impossible for a ship to manage. They estimated the distance to Asia to be much further than Columbus believed. Also, there were other factors going against Columbus. Let us remember that Columbus was a foreigner, a Genoese. There was always going to be a distrust of an outsider by many. Also, there was something else coming into play here, and I will simply call it arrogance. Columbus was seen as a big talker and a blowhard. When he made his proposal to sail west, he asked for three caravels for the voyage, plus goods to barter with. That sounds reasonable. But he also requested that he be given the title Knight of the Golden Spurs. He also asked for the title of Admiral of the Ocean Sea. Not to mention he demanded substantial monies and profits from any expedition. It all wrapped up into a great big no from King John and his ministers. But King John would not dismiss Columbus, at least not right away. The Portuguese crown hedged their bets here and told Columbus that they would think about his proposal, all the while extracting as much information from Columbus about his proposed journey as possible. So while Columbus waited impatiently for the Portuguese crown's response, King John would quickly dispatch a caravel west, basically taking Columbus's ideas and trying them out without him. The ship would return after finding nothing but ocean. That clinched it. The Portuguese would say, see you later. So, it was 1485, and Columbus was a widower with a young son. His grand enterprise had been rejected by King John II of Portugal. So, with Portugal a dead end, what do you do next? Well, try elsewhere. Columbus sent his brother, Bartholomew, north to England and then France to pitch the idea of a westward exploratory voyage. However, nothing would come of these visits. He would then turn to Genoa as a potential backer, but no luck there. There is even some evidence that Columbus went to Venice to offer up his scheme to them, but again, to no avail. So, Columbus's grand enterprise had been rejected by at least four or five different nations. Next on the list was Spain, Portugal's natural rival. Logically, Spain was a natural backer for Columbus. Isabella and Ferdinand were ambitious, and they had few other options due to the restrictions of the Treaty of Alcacovas. The Spanish monarchs would listen to Columbus, and while they were interested, they had other things on their minds, specifically the war in Granada. They did not have the resources for such a risky affair. Thus, the answer to Columbus would ultimately be no, but there was interest there. 
One thing that did happen in Spain was that in 1487, Columbus would meet a 20-year-old orphan named Beatriz Enriquez de Arana. The two would become lovers, and in 1488, she would give birth to a son, Fernando. The couple would never marry, but Columbus would recognize the child as his, and Beatriz would go on to raise both Ferdinand as well as Diego. So, rejected by Spain, Columbus would return to Portugal in 1488 with hopes of re-engaging King John with his scheme. However, it was that year that Bartolomeu Diaz would return to Portugal after having rounded the southern tip of Africa. The achievement crushed Columbus's dreams, as Portugal now knew exactly what they needed to do to reach the Far East. Columbus's westward voyage was of no interest to the Portuguese. In 1489, Columbus would find himself back in Spain. The crown was still intrigued by his idea, but the war with Granada was still ongoing, and they were not quite ready to take the plunge. However, they would put Columbus on their payroll as a way to keep him from pitching the idea elsewhere. Christopher Columbus was a stubborn man, and he would spend the next few years promoting and negotiating with the Spanish crown for his expedition. His persistence, as well as a Spanish military victory, would ultimately get him what he desired. In January of 1492, the last major Muslim stronghold on the Iberian Peninsula, Granada, was conquered. Ferdinand and Isabella had, mostly, unified Spain and kicked out the Muslims. That would open a door for Columbus. The Portuguese were on the verge of reaching the Far East, and Spain wanted into that prize. They were now free to pursue new ideas with regard to expanding their trade empire. Enter Christopher Columbus, the boastful 41-year-old Genoese mariner, with an audacious plan to open a westward trade route to the Far East. The negotiations between Columbus and the Spanish monarchs were never a sure thing. Columbus wanted a lot for his part in the scheme. Here are the highlights of his demands. He would receive the title of Admiral of the Ocean Sea. He would become the Viceroy and Governor of all new lands claimed by Spain. He would have right to nominate three people to any office in these new lands, with the crown picking one of the three to fill the office. He would also receive 10% of all revenues derived from the colonies in perpetuity, and his titles and privileges would be passed on to his heirs. In addition, Columbus offered to pay one-eighth of the expedition's costs, and in return, he would receive one-eighth interest in the commercial adventures of the new lands, and of course, receive one-eighth of the profits. The list is pretty much what he had demanded from King John in Portugal many years earlier. And what had that gotten him? A big fat see you later. And that response was pretty much the same thing from the Spanish monarchy. They were reluctant to give him so much power, so Ferdinand and Isabella said, no thanks. But then they had some second thoughts. It is said that Columbus was literally riding out of town when he was summoned back to the king and queen. Ultimately, advisors to the court swayed Ferdinand and Isabella to accept the arrangement. Columbus's demands were excessive, no doubt, but if he succeeded, they would all make a fortune from the venture. Thus, on April 17, 1492, in Santa Fe, Granada, Ferdinand and Isabella struck a deal with Columbus. This arrangement would be called the Capitulations of Santa Fe. The crown would provide him with three ships for his expedition, as well as funds to outfit the fleet. In return, Columbus would sail west, his task to find a trade route to the Far East. He would greet the great Khan that Marco Polo had spoken of, collect gold and silks and jewels and spices. He would also set the groundwork for the spread of Christianity to the heathen lands. Columbus would get all of his fancy titles and the shares of the expedition and much more. It was a pretty sweet deal. If he succeeded, he would be fabulously wealthy. The agreement would ultimately prove to be contentious because no one really had any clue just how huge of a world was waiting across the ocean to be unlocked. And when Columbus would find and claim a couple of new continents, 
the Spanish crowd was not going to be thrilled at the idea of granting him the governance and profits of such a vast territory. We will talk about these disputes later in the series. In the end, Columbus had his backing for his trip to the West, and he was lucky. The crown wasn't requiring him to fund the entire expedition, only one-eighth of it. That would be much more manageable. As for financing, Isabella supposedly offered up her jewels to pay for the expedition, but that was just a gesture on her part. In reality, the crown would get money for the expedition from a group of Genoese bankers residing in Seville, and repaying them by selling indulgences and levies. Columbus's expedition would come together quickly. The Spanish government would sort of just order people to help Columbus. If supplies were needed, they were taken and paid for in the name of the crown. The fleet would be assembled at the port of Palos de la Frontera, or just Palos, in the southwest of Spain, west of Seville. Columbus had the right to three ships for his voyage. He would get two when Martin Alonso Pinzon, a wealthy navigator, and his brother, Vincente Yanis Pinzon, both natives of Palos, would sign on board to the expedition. The Pinzon family would bring a lot to the table. First, Martin would provide needed capital for the expedition, investing a significant amount of his own cash into the enterprise. Second, there were the ships. The Pinzon brothers had connections, and used those connections to convince two business associates, Juan de la Cosa and Juan Nino, to commit their ships to the expedition. But just as important, the Pinzon family was well respected by the sailors in the area, and their participation was critical in filling out the ship's rosters. Many of the local men would not have trusted Columbus, a foreigner with an outlandish scheme. But the Pinzone brothers, particularly Martin, were a different matter. Their involvement gave a legitimacy to the endeavor, and thus Columbus had a solid crew, not just those that he could force into his service. The two ships that the Pinzone brothers helped bring to the expedition were the Nina and the Santa Maria. The Nina was a small caravel with a burthen of 50 to 60 tons, and probably no more than 50 feet long. Her official name was Santa Clara, but the ship was called Nina in reference to its owner, the aforementioned Juan Nino. The other ship was a carrack named Santa Maria. She would be the largest of the fleet's three vessels, about 60 feet long, with a burden of more than 100 tons. Santa Maria had a single deck and three masts. She was more robust than the other ships in the expedition and would serve as Columbus's flagship. The third ship for the expedition was not that easy to obtain, and eventually it would be pressed into service. The ship, the Pinta, was owned by Gomez Rascón and Cristóbal Quintero. Neither of the two men, or the crew, were happy to be part of the expedition. Pinta was a caravel about 55 feet long and had a burthen of 60 to 70 tons. Next, with his ships in place, Columbus filled out his fleet's complement. As noted, Santa Maria would be Columbus's flagship. He would captain the vessel, which had a crew of about 40 men. Juan de la Cosa, Santa Maria's owner, would be the ship's master, which essentially was the second-in-command. Nina, the smallest of the ships, was commanded by Vincente Yanis Pinzon. Juan Nino, the owner, was the ship's master. Twenty-four men comprised the crew. Pinta was commanded by Martin Alonso Pinzon. A third Pinzon brother, Francisco Martin Pinzon, would serve as the ship's master. The Pinta was reputed to be the fastest of the fleet's vessels. She had a crew of twenty-six men. So Columbus had his fleet ready. Three ships, not big ones, but ships nonetheless. He had roughly 90 men under his command. Now, before he sails, a couple of quick things. First, as a sign of respect to Columbus, the Spanish monarchs would let his son Diogo become a page to Prince Juan, the heir to the throne. It was a big gesture by Ferdinand and Isabella, and Columbus must have been in all his glory. I want to remind everyone a little bit about Columbus. 
He had a reputation as a touchy and sensitive man with a large, and at times fragile, ego. And here he was being showered with everything he dreamed of. Titles, honors, power. It was everything he had desired and expected in his life. When you read about Columbus, there seems to be a lot of pettiness in his character. But I have to remind myself that the man must have been imbued with charisma and energy. He had dreamed a grand scheme like few others had dared to dream. He was proposing to sail into nothing. And I mean nothing. It was a blank spot on the map. That was audacious. And nuts. Ships just did not do that. They hugged the shores when they were in unknown waters, or they had destinations in mind, like going from Egypt to Venice. Crossing the Mediterranean was dangerous, but the beginning and end points were in known quantity. Sailing blindly into the ocean for Asia offered none of that certainty. It's really a bold thing to attempt once you consider the situation. But here he was, a foreigner, getting the go-ahead from one of Europeans' great monarchies to try such a thing. So, Christopher Columbus, the boasting Genoese navigator, was finally getting his chance to prove to the world that they were wrong and that he was right. On the evening of August 3rd, 1492, his three ships would depart from Palos de la Frontera, Spain. His goal was to first to go to the Canary Islands, and from there he would head west into the Great Unknown, in search of the legendary lands described by Marco Polo. If he could accomplish that, he knew he would be the most celebrated explorer in the world. So, that is the end of the first part of our series on Christopher Columbus. Next time, our intrepid explorer heads off on what will probably be the most famous voyage of discovery ever recorded. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. We will see you next time. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.